Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, July 1st, 2021. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Um, so I want to start ta- out just talking briefly about the Bill Cosby case and the uh, fact that the uh, Pennsylvania uh, Supreme Court has ruled that um, uh, he his conviction was vacated and he is not uh, there is no possibility of retrying him on the charges um, for which he was convicted and um it's a very interesting case because of course uh, if you presume that the facts the facts are not in dispute that he um drugged and uh drugged women and then slept with them against their will thereby raping them um uh you then have to get to the question of why this decision and if you read the decision it's very um I don't know how to describe it, very definitive that the case should never have been brought. And it's sort of important to look at this and not say, well, this is just another case in which women aren't being listened to, or it's, you know, a judicial, some kind of weird judicial overreach or something like that. Uh, the, The facts of the case, which are interesting, are that the district attorney in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, determined that he could not he it was unlikely to impossible that he could secure a conviction of Cosby on criminal charges in 2005 or 2006 with uh, his accuser Andrea Costand and so he made a deal the purpose of which was to compel Cosby to testify in in her civil lawsuit and in other civil lawsuits that uh, since he said, uh, you will never be prosecuted for this crime, Cosby had no right to say, to take the Fifth Amendment when he was deposed in the civil lawsuits because he was shielded from criminal prosecution. And then, after all the publicity and the case came and the 46 women came out and all of that, uh, one of the this district attorney's successors as district attorney basically said, well, that deal doesn't apply to me and use the information from the civil de- de- depositions, Cosby's own testimony in the civil depositions that he had given women quaaludes, that he had given them Benadryl in particular to indict and convict him uh, on these criminal charges. And the what the what the Supreme Court said is, he was, in essence, denied his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination because no no person would ever have, he would have taken the Fifth in the civil depositions and only did not do so because he had no legal right to do so, having been shielded from criminal prosecution. Um, and when I, you hear that or read that, despite all the controversies and everything, you kind of have to say to yourself that this is a this is a judgment that uh, has the quality of the kind of thing you want a you want judges to to do when they are asked to decide these kinds of cases. 
because it's not that this could happen to anybody, but it could kind of happen to anybody in a in a in a weird sense. In other words, you, as things happen, um, and you are um, you are given to understand that you have no recourse but to do X as long as Y isn't going to happen to you, and then Y happens to you because uh, you did X. Um, and, and so that, that could apply in almost any case, particularly in, when it comes to uh, constitutional rights. And so uh, while it is a tragic day for the... I know, I, he did serve two years in prison, by the way. So it's not as though if you were looking at it and saying he got away scot-free. He didn't get away scot-free. He did serve two years in prison while he was awaiting this appeal. But that's my take. Anybody want to contradict me? Well, I, I, I'm not challenging your interpretation. I agree with it. but And it's worth emphasizing that prosecutors um, often make deals with people who uh, have broken the law and done terrible things in order to uh, get a bigger fish. We, they do this in drug cases all the time, for example. Um, and th- those deals actually need to mean something, even if a new uh, attorney general comes in, a new prosecutor comes in, you need the, the people who make those deals need to respect them, uh, even if, if the players change. So I mean, I Bill Cosby is a horrible rapist and a horrible human being. I will say that the praise he got when when the decision was made from Felicia Rashad, his his former, you know, Mrs. Co- who played Mrs. Cosby and his in his uh, sitcom was a little jarring considering she's the, she's been recently named to, to a very big position at Howard university here in DC. So that was jarring. Like, I don't think we need to talk about how the whole, all of the charges are right against him or some sort of great injustice, because it's clear that, that this man was a predator. Uh, but I, I agree with you, John. I think it's, it actually shows that there's some integrity in the system when judges uphold these deals, uh, even if they, it does lead to someone like Bill Cosby leaving prison. It also shows, though, this links back to our conversation yesterday, um, this gargantuan incompetence um, on the part of the prosecutor in the first place who, who got it wrong, right? Um, he's sort of exactly of the class that we're, we're discussing, you, you know. Um, well, I'm not sure about that because the question is what, was, what were his motivations? Was his motivation to, you know, to, to do something – uh, competent, or was his motivation to uh, be the prosecutor in a uh, morally righteous, um, enormously famous case involving one of the most successful uh, entertainers in the history of the United States? Um, that would that it, would get overturned, though, uh, knowingly. Well, well, I mean, it took took a long time for it to get overturned, and generally speaking, I think. Uh, despite Felicia Rashad's um, weird defense or, you know, celebration of his, of Cosby's release, I think the general idea is that a terrible injustice has been done to the victims, which would mean that the prosecutor who did bring the case had done a justice to the victims and that this, and so therefore he remains at least, uh, you know, on the plus, on the plus side of the ledger. Uh, Ordinarily, you would say it's terribly embarrassing to be, a prosecutor whose most famous and most high-profile cases thrown out uh, as as um, as again as definitively as this case was thrown out. But on the other hand, uh, this was you know the greatest Me Too moment, right? The sort of the, the that and the Harvey Weinstein uh, conviction, and so um, 
uh, he may not be feeling the same way as you do that, you know, he, he, he did something noble, you know, and that, uh, it's just judicial activism that, uh, you know, that caused this. Now, it's very easy to, to see how, Maybe. what people are going to say, I think. Um, well, what people are saying is, is this is happening because Cosby's rich and famous. Um, that's that's the sort of that's the dominant right. kind of social media narrative. Right. Well, you know, it, there's a sense in which that is that has some validity to it, because I mean, God knows how much money he has spent over the course of this appeal, right? I mean, it's been sort of probably two years full time, uh, you know, legal effort. You know, thousands and thousands of hours of of of, of lawyers' time that must have cost his must have cost him millions upon millions of dollars and other people just don't have those resources. Um, uh, of course you could also then make the claim if I'm right about this, that, that, that if the Pennsylvania Supreme court is right and says the case should never have been brought, then it was only brought because he was rich and famous. Not that he got off because he was rich and famous, but it was, you know, it the case should never have been brought because, and it was because of his, wealth and fame and the, and the, the idea that, 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 uh, or whatever, I don't know. Anyway, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a complicated thing because nobody wants to defend Bill Cosby, but you know, uh, the, the, nobody likes the fifth amendment ever. Everybody hates the fifth amendment, which is why it's so necessary. Right, so one of the most necessary things in the Constitution, indeed, in, in all liberal societies, or among other things, it prevents it, it prevents torture. Right, I mean, it's a way of it's a way of making sure that torture doesn't doesn't happen in order to, to coerce confessions, because the idea is that uh, uh, confessions are often. I mean, a lot of the high profile cases where there are vacate, you know, things are vacated, like the Central Park Five, involve confessions that are then determined to have been coerced. Uh, It's also kind of an interesting postscript to uh, some of the Me Too moment discussions we've had over the last year or so, where it's a reminder. um, I don't know whether to call it a good one or a bad one, but, you know, moments of cultural reckoning don't always lead to dramatic uh, legal and policy changes, right? So So there are a lot of the people who will be seeing cases, not just of people like Bill Cosby who get off of, you know, out of prison, but we'll see cases where men who were falsely accused or wrongly accused or, or whose reputations were damaged will sue and win. There's some of those cases working their way through the courts now. So the so the sort of cultural reckoning moment of Me Too is having long term, sometimes unintended consequences when it when it works its way through the legal system. And it's useful to follow up on some of these cases to sort of measure and assess how much of the demand for change was actually met and how much of it was just more, you know, a, a kind of. Uh, reaction that that it, the spotlight can shine but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to right. change the issue and i and i this is one of those cases i think that has a kind of leaves people feeling a little ambiguous about the power of the movement right um okay so to move on <clears throat> from this to something uh, more uh let's say el- elegiac uh donald rumsfeld died yesterday uh at the age of of 88 and um if you read uh uh, if you if you reacquaint yourself with 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 uh, Rummy's 
life story. Uh, it's one of those questions about whether we will see his like again. Now, uh, there are <laughs> liberals and, you know, uh, anti-war people and stuff like that who want to say, oh, we shouldn't see his like again because he was so monstrous, so terrible because of Iraq and Abu Ghraib and all of this and all that. But story of Donald Rumsfeld is that he is a guy who uh, in between, uh, you know, uh, except for a brief period of t- relatively in the course of his life, brief period of time in the private sector, uh, dedicated his life to his in service to his country, both as as a as a uh, as a soldier, as an elected politician, then as a staffer, uh, and uh, with a, just an astonishing resume. Like there's there's almost nothing like it in the annals of American history. He was, uh, you know, he he ran. Uh, this equal opportunity program uh, in the White House under Nixon. He became ambassador to NATO. He then was at the age of, in his 30s, was the youngest chief of staff to a president when President Ford made him his chief of staff. Then President Ford made him secretary of defense. (laughs) Then um, Ronald Reagan, then he went into the private sector. Then Ronald Reagan asked him to be Ronald Reagan's Middle East envoy uh, and then, uh, of course, he he ended up as as George W. Bush's Secretary of Defense for a second go round, and found himself uh, in a very interesting position, which is that he was you know he was in his seventies, and uh, he was determined to not to sort of like maintain the status quo but to upend it and to revolutionize the Pentagon to uh, get it out of its old hidebound ways, make it swifter, faster, more tactical. Um, and, and so he was a change agent at the top of the food chain uh, in a very interesting way. And his efforts to modernize and revolutionize the Pentagon were then interrupted by 9-11 and everything that happened subsequent to that um, but that was his passion. That was his his idea was that we needed to change how um, Americans fought wars. And we did both in part under his tutelage and in part because of the ways wars had to be conducted in Afghanistan and Iraq. And uh, one of the gravest or most interesting injustices done to him is this idea that he was this, you know, monster who created uh, inhumane conditions and all of this. And based on almost everything that we know, Rumsfeld was not a cheerleader or a lead or a, or an emotional leader uh, calling for us to invade and take Iraq. Like that actually wasn't, there were people under him like Paul Wolfowitz who supported it he was much more interested in this modernization program, and uh, and it was frustrating, according to Bob Woodward's accounts of um, of, of Bush's war fighting, which of course came directly from the mouths of like Colin Powell, who was just like emptying his, who was just filling Woodward's notebooks. You know, he was like uh, Rumsfeld won't say anything. Rumsfeld doesn't won't take a won't take a stand. He doesn't have an opinion about this. Um, he would present Bush with negatives and positives, with good things and bad things, 
all the while saying, if we're going to do this, we'll do it as well as we can and all of that. But, but, but this was, in a weird way, it was not his war. And it became his war because he was the Secretary of Defense. But it wasn't the thing, you know, he wasn't like, you know, uh, some kind of um, ideologically driven, you know, uh, Dr. Strangelove wanting to, you know, wanting to have the United States take over the Middle East. Um, but he did his duty. That was what the president decided to do. And he was going to fight the war as best he could and administer the war as best he could under, under increasingly difficult circumstances uh, and complicated circumstances like the fact that because Turkey denied us the right to, uh, to move the, the uh, move army divisions down from the North that created the conditions under which much of the Iraqi army could slip away and uh, and and was not defeated, but but slunk away and then joined the joined the resistance forces. Um, and there was nothing he could do about that. That was a geopolitical circumstance, and they fought the war as best they could. Um, and I'm just saying that in his life, he uh, he was uh, profoundly selfless. Um, he did not seek. I mean, he briefly ran for president in 1980 or 1988. But I mean, he was not. He did not seek the spot. That wasn't what he was about. And so, uh, it's an interesting model because I just don't know that we. You know, he wasn't there for the furtherance of his own glory. He wasn't actually there to accrete power. That wasn't his. That wasn't what he was about. And so, I, I don't know that. Um, people like that really exist that much anymore. Um, I don't know. Does anybody? I'm sure you do, but you wouldn't, they do, but you wouldn't know about them. You wouldn't hear about them because they're not making maniacs of themselves and landing on the front page, which is the only way you get attention these days. Um, For me, you know, at a very, when I was quite young, still in college after 9-11, which put me on a career trajectory that landed me here. Um, Donald Rumsfeld was an immensely comforting presence, a profoundly competent presence in the Pentagon at a time when all eyes were on the Pentagon. Um, And the execution of the invasion of Afghanistan, um, a very small footprint coordinating with with the rebel groups that the uh, Northern Alliance was a tremendous strategic feat. Um, Major combat operations were over by the end of 2002, that was not something that anybody predicted would occur. Uh, we talk about Afghanistan now like it's this ongoing horrific tragedy, and I, I have my views on that that are pretty well elaborated on. I don't have any unenumerated thoughts or unspoken thoughts on Afghanistan. Nevertheless, um, we look at this with a, a lot of hindsight at the time. Um, this was a profound victory and one that was, uh, that was quite welcome in my view. And even during the Iraq uh, War, around 2004-ish, um, when things started getting really hairy in Anbar. Um, he was nevertheless a much more capable, competent presence on the stage talking about these issues than, in my view, even the president of the United States at the time. Um, certainly not his national security advisor, certainly not his secretary of state. Um, I took my cues from, from Donald Rumsfeld, and he fell on his sword in 2006, um, in my view, perhaps a little unduly. Uh, he was sort of sacrificed as a result of the November 2006 elections, um, maybe there was no other alternative, no recourse. And the, certainly the, the 
the surge that we pursued afterwards was an effective policy goal, but you know, his reputation was pretty well tarnished among Republicans by that point um, in a way that it probably has never recovered from. And it was something of an injustice in my view. He was, um, um, I, I, I think, you know, just in the broadest sense, he was a serious person in the halls of power in a way that we haven't really seen in, at, at this point in, uh, you know, at least eight years, if not longer. You know, it's um, at a time when it's just now it's just been this parade of sort of second rates to, to clowns. Um, uh, and there is just no reason to have any faith um, in so much of, of what you hear about very serious and complicated uh, details of statecraft. Um, I think in, just in that very basic sense, I, I fear we won't see his like again. Well, and he right, didn't, uh, he, Matt, Matt Latimer has an interesting obituary about him in Politico that's worth reading, kind of um, uh, talking about what what you mentioned, John, that he, not seeing his like again means someone who basically, as Noah said, fell on his sword and, and resigned, but never complained about it, didn't, didn't score settle. He wasn't an ideologue in the way that we think of ideologues and how they behave today. Um, and whatever his views, his personal private views about either how he was treated or what he was told to do, he kept those largely to himself when he was performing his duty. And he didn't have contempt for the little guy. That's, I have a friend who worked in the, who's worked in the Pentagon for a long time, that the respect that Rumsfeld showed not just his peers and his superiors, but his subordinates. And that's also something in Washington, it sounds like it should be a no brainer. And it is for most decent people. But in Washington, D.C., it's always worth noting and praising someone in power who behaves that way, because they are too few and far between. I mean, he did not suffer fools gladly. Yes, he was very tough on fools. But the fools that he did not suffer weren't the secretaries or the little, they were the mid-level and high-level bureaucrats, the mediocrities who rose above their station and then were faced with this incredibly difficult set of challenges. And in his view, this I'm talking now, of course, about the Bush administration, and in his view, kind of just you know, thought they could skate by or they could sort of use the same, you know, same old way of doing things. And he complained at the Pentagon that people talked in garb, you know, in garbled jargon that was that 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 was intended to make them look good and expert and to confuse anybody who listened to them. They couldn't think clearly. They didn't speak clearly. They didn't offer advice and direction clearly. And again, I think the and and then it wasn't just in 2006 that he fell on his sword. When the Abu Ghraib scandal hit, and it turned out that there was this nighttime shift at the prison that was abusing these prisoners, he offered to resign. Then he, of course, testified before Congress famously about it. And he, this was 25 levels below his station. This was a. This was a uh, you know an employment issue at in Iraq at a place in Iraq where prisoners were kept, and he accepted responsibility for it. I mean, he said, "I don't," you know, he said, he would he would have he would have accepted it had Bush accepted his offer 
uh, to resign on the grounds that that if that was what it would take to restore American confidence or to make sure that somebody took responsibility for egregious behavior, he was willing to be the one to take the responsibility. And Bush said no, uh, that it was not it was it was inappropriate and wrong to to ch- switch horses uh, in midstream, uh, particularly in an election year. And all of that, that's also part of the kind of honor that he brought to the job. And I think ultimately the honor that he brought to the job was it wasn't just that he, you know, uh, uh, it was that he he didn't come out and say, I never wanted this war. I, I That's not what I wanted. Or I wanted to go into the caves of Tora Bora, but the Joint Chiefs stopped me to get bin Laden, but the Joint Chiefs stopped me. He didn't do that. And he could have, because I think it was mostly true. Um, okay, let's pull back from uh, from these um, uh, uh, large and weighty topics and talk just for a minute about underwear, men's underwear, Tommy John underwear. Uh, Tommy John doesn't have customers. It has fanatics, and it has a new and most advanced men's underwear yet, Apollo with a performance-grade dry-release fabric blend that is exclusive to Tommy John. It's Tommy John's latest comfort innovation. You can't get it anywhere else. It's soft, supportive stretches for the perfect fit every day, proven to keep you drier and up to 7 degrees cooler than regular, regular cotton underwear. It's available up to size 4XL, and with 15 million pairs sold, men across America love Tommy John underwear because there's no more flopping, sticking, or chafing. Unlike all Tommy John underwear, I'm wearing it today. Apollo comes with the best pair you'll ever wear. It's free guarantee. Tommy John's new Apollo men's underwear is high end, and you can't get them anywhere else. Right now, get 20% off your first order at tommyjohn.com slash commentary. Go to tommyjohn.com slash commentary for 20% off. tommyjohn.com slash commentary. See site for details uh uh where 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 should we where should we go now should we talk I said the united states supreme court go ahead Noah. please go to the they united have issued supreme a court. very much anticipated verdict this this morning which is like all supreme court verdicts a little complicated i can only distill it into uh, and this is regarding arizona uh this arizona's voting rights law of arizona uh, precluded by statute or prescribed by statute, um, the pro- the pro- practice of ballot harvesting. Um, the Supreme Court ruled in a 6-3 decision, partisan decision, uh, that this did not violate the Voting Rights Act. The intent of the law when it was passed was not to disenfranchise along racial lines or along any lines. Um, it was simply to prescribe this practice uh, and seems to me like a rather just ruling because this was a practice that Republicans have been railing against for quite some time, but Democrats too. If you remember a very famous race in North Carolina's ninth ninth congressional district in 2018, where a Republican operative uh, was indicted for mishandling absentee ballots. Ballot harvesting allows you to give your ballot, an absentee ballot, to a third party who is submitted on your behalf to an election commission. And uh, this ended up overturning this election. Uh, You know, we talk a lot about confidence in elections. 
and the competence of the people who administer them. And this is one of those practices that overcomplicates and is uh, easily manipulated and has the prospect of allowing for fraud that undermines confidence in these elections. Um, it seems to me like it's a practice that doesn't need to exist, uh, very much like we don't really need to have 90 days of absentee voting. No one's disenfranchised. If you have 30 days of absentee voting, it's one of these things where Democrats have convinced themselves that all, that all everything and anything that allows you to have a, access to a ballot whenever you want one, wh- however you want one, is necessary and vital. And they've all forgotten the arguments that they made against ballot harvesting this morning when this ruling came out. Um, so it strikes me as just a purely reflexive, partisan, knee-jerk response to the conservative majority here. But it also seems to me like a pretty valid decision, a good decision that will ultimately benefit not just uh, Republicans and anybody who's interested in uh, the fair and free conduct of elections, but Democrats too. It, it might also, it's going to serve, I assume, as a little bit of a preview or, or a warning for uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland, who's filed this lawsuit against the state of Georgia for similar sort of making similar claims about uh, violations um, based on race about Georgia's election laws. So that's obviously just starting, um, but it doesn't bode well if it gets if that makes its way through the lower courts and, and to the high court, given this ruling. And that lawsuit, by the way, is is kind of ridiculously bad. I'm not a, I'm not a lawyer, but even I read it and thought, what this this really not a very <laughs> persuasive argument that the Department of Justice is making here. I mean the. The central contention of the majority opinion, from what I can tell, is that if the law was not passed for the purpose of discriminating racially, you cannot say, you cannot attack it on the grounds that it discriminates racially. That has to be a conscious and deliberate choice that you are changing the voting rules in order to limit the franchise uh, in a way that, that uniquely harms uh, minorities or in this case, or in this case, actually, you know, African-Americans um, specifically. Ballot harvesting is a trick. Um, one of the reasons that this is an interesting case is that what happened in 2018 was that California passed, affirmatively passed a ballot harvesting law allowing people to collect uh, ballots from, uh, you know, from third parties, uh, and 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 the Democratic Party was prepared for this, and the Republican Party wasn't. And in congressional elections, uh, they they ran the table in California through ballot harvesting. They got hundreds of thousands of votes into the system by saying, no, no, I'll, I'll, I'll pick them up and take them and bring them to the, uh, to the polls for you. As evidenced, by the way, by the, the results of the 2020 elections, <clears throat> where in 2018 Republicans were wiped out of their ancestral homeland of Orange County and uh, subsequently returned to power in, in substantial numbers in 2020 in a race when the top of the ticket lost by and, significant margins. And why did that happen in 2020? Because the Republicans were prepared. Like, you could only... It's the, this is an analogy we use often, it's the Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck cartoon, you know, that, that, that Daffy Duck wins the contest for applause in the theater by swallowing the dynamite and blowing himself up. 
And then Bugs Bunny says, Daffy, they love you. They're screaming for more. And he says, I can only do it once. You can only do it once. You can only pull a fast one. And then it's like, oh, well, I'm not going to get the wool pulled over my eyes again. I'm also going to do ballot harvesting. You do it. I do it. It's neutralized. So the funny part is that, yeah, so now there is a, I think there is a logistical and practical problem with ballot harvesting, which is that it it does make it possible, much more possible for there to be voter fraud, obviously, since someone is someone who is not an official vote counter uh, is, and not a member of the postal service or something like that, is collecting ballots and bringing them to another place. And so you could take an empty ballot, you could take a ballot from somebody, execute it, you could stuff the ballot box that way. I don't know what controls they have over this. I'm sure there are some. Um, but you can see why it's a problem. And uh, if it were, if it weren't, it part of the thing here is, and Chris Starwalt wrote about this for commentary in his really brilliant essay about Republicans fearing voter turnout, that Democrats believe, I think somewhat falsely, that anything that allows for more voting will help them. And Republicans now have come to believe, in part because of the Democratic belief, that that, that things that restrict voting uh, will help them. And uh, there is almost no evidence to support this contention uh, because part of the evidence is something like this ballot harvesting case uh, or the case in California. And if Republicans in the Republican the California Republican Party hadn't been morons and these campaigns hadn't been stupid and had been paying attention, they would, you know, and they'd hired the right consultants who weren't, who like came from California, knew what they were doing. They would have said, oh my God, you know, there's ballot harvesting now. We should probably be doing this, but they didn't. And so, you know, um, anyway, I'm Can just saying that. Yeah, go I just ahead. want to introduce something that's a little off topic. It's sort of tangential, but it's related. Uh, and our audience needs an update on this issue because it's related to voting, related to balloting. In New York City, John, you predicted yesterday that there would be no no new recount we, or we wouldn't get new numbers. And we did. We got new numbers from the Board of Elections yesterday afternoon. Remember, they said, oh, we have like 100 and how, how many was it? 130,000 dummy ballots. 135,000 dummy ballots. They needed to you know rerun the numbers. And they did. And they came up with precisely the same result that they had to the decimal point, the same result that they had previously that everybody said was didn't make a lot of sense and was probably kind of flawed, right? What, yeah. what, are, what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts on that one? I, honestly, I can't make any sense out of this. I mean, I said yesterday I thought that they might have to rerun the election because I wasn't entirely sure how they were going to segregate the dummy ballots, the hundred from the from the other ballots, like the dummy ballots constituted something like one sixth or one fifth of the number of, of ballots altogether. So how are they gonna And how, how did are they, they do this set? with the alacrity that they did it? I mean, this I is a notoriously slow institution. I don't all of a sudden know. They, they just remedied this problem over the course of twelve hours? They work I, overnight? They're going yeah. on vacation. Yeah, I don't know. I don't trust it. And, you know, at, at the very least, in terms of making sure that, you know, something untoward isn't going on here, there is a candidate in Eric Adams whose, you know, future is now at stake here uh, by this incredible surge in, 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 the, in the ranked choice voting numbers for, 
for his rival, uh, Catherine Garcia. And he, he has no reason not to leave this, you know, to leave this alone. Like we'll, we'll, we'll see what's going to happen. Once the absentee ballots are counted, there are 125,000 absentee ballots. Uh, she has to win, I think about two thirds of them in order to overtake him. If my counting is right, she needs, there are 125,000 ballots out. She needs to have a, she needs 15,000 more than he does. So that means that she needs like, okay, 65,000 to 50,000, something like that, which is a pretty substantial margin. Uh, and so she needs two thirds of them or whatever. I, I mean, I can't quite figure out what the numbers are. And, uh, and, you know, he's not going to just take it lying down if they say, oh, well, she, she's won, you know. She's now overtaking nor she, him. Nor is she if he wins. I mean, that's right. the, that's the problem with the with the massive screw up. It's, right. You know, now it, right. it's, it leaves room for everyone to to lodge yeah. their complaints. Yeah, I was listening to the to to our friend Chris Starwalt on the Dispatch podcast with um with another friend of mine, AB Stoddard, um, and and Chris, who was a very you know cheerful, upbeat, peppy kind of guy. Uh, turned and and of course was somebody who said like republic in this piece for us said republicans shouldn't fear voter turnout that's fine he he said you know we are there is a not inconceivable chance that the uh 2024 national election uh will fail uh that there is going to be so much so many counter pressures so many so much paranoia on the part of both parties about the misbehavior tricks, conducts, and, you know, behaviors of, of other parties and some of these new laws coming into place and whatever happens, um, that you could have a result in, uh, in, in a presidential election that really and genuinely and truly is not acceptable to anybody or, or that the result is not definitive enough to say, okay, this party won and this party lost. It's not like because of the hanging chads in the Supreme Court, or it's not because of the problems in the Electoral College, or it's not because of false claims of election fraud. It's going to be a kind of combination of 18 different things. And you really could have people who genuinely and legitimately do not believe, and not even legitimately, but do not believe that the result of the 2024 election uh, is certifiable. You'll have fights over whether or not electors should be seated. You'll have faithless. You'll have all of this. And you know, Chris said again in a in a in a in an interesting and um, uncharacteristic tone that once that happens, we're nearing the end of the American experiment. Like if you cannot, I mean, not, really, not until 1876. In one election of the United States, maybe 2,000 you can say is the same, but it's it's trickier. In one election in 1876, there were hijinks and hanky-panky that led to the, the a person who should not have become president becoming president because of political backroom deals that then led to the writing of all kinds of weird and incomprehensible laws to ensure that that never happened again. Uh, and so uh, this is worrisome. Like, you know, you keep this, keep this keeps happening. If like every year there is going to be, or every six months, 
there's going to be an election that is called into question and there are going to be state legislatures either writing these restrictive laws or writing insanely a restrictive laws to counteract the restrictive laws written by Republicans, where is that going to leave us? I mean, I, I tend not to be kind of like a, like a doom and gloom guy, but uh, that, that struck me as, um, as a, as a scenario that one should sort of take seriously. Well, and add to that, the, the likely, uh, you know, the preview we got of how platforms that from which everybody gets their news and all their information preemptively censoring certain arguments about certain elections or preemptively declaring off limits any discussion of something a candidate said or deplatforming a particular candidate or a particular part i mean that that adds to the sense of chaos which i think then fuels conspiracy theories and fuels uh, anxiety and fuels the mistrust that that we saw uh, that we've seen quite a bit of in the last few years and the problem and is, of course, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, <clears throat> you know, the, it's the, the problem is compounded by the fact that any attempt at a remedy would has to come necessarily from within the system that people don't trust. You know? Right. Um, so that so, the key thing here is that I think Trump illegitimately sowed mistrust. It was illegitimate. The elections past were not tenses. stolen. In the past tenses, not. Right. Fair it's enough. It's continuing it to so illegitimate dis- mistrust. Mistrust in the New York City election, the primary election here, is the correct posture. Uh, mistrust of, uh, you know, of, 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 of simple political competence, which is what Abe, you know, talked about before in the Cosby case, that's not political, but whatever, is the right response to a lot of things that, 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 that go on. So where does that leave us? It leaves us in a very weird position, which is that maybe we should be mistrustful of these elections. And suddenly, you know, it's like the honor system. We kind of agree to accept these things. And what happens when we can no longer agree to accept them? With that, let me read the next ad from our friends at Bambi running an HR, running a business with HR issues, they can kill you. Wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, labor regulations, HR manager salaries aren't cheap, an average of $70,000 a year. Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically for small business. You can get a dedicated HR manager, craft HR policy, and maintain your compliance all for just $99 a month. Bambi can change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or real-time chat. From onboarding to terminations, they customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees' day-to-day all for just $99 a month. Month-to-month, no hidden fees. Cancel any time. You didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time on HR compliance. Let Bambi help get your free HR audit today. Go to Bambi.com slash commentary right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash commentary. Excuse me, spelled B-A-M to the B-E-E dot com slash commentary. Um, I guess one last quick point to make. There's a very interesting Pew has done a study of what they call validated voters. Um, so they've, they've gone back and tried to track people uh, who voted in 2016, who didn't vote in 2016, and who voted in 2018 and didn't, and who voted in 2020 and didn't vote in 2020. 
and it appears clear that um, the voters who didn't vote in 2016 made the difference in 2018 coming out and voting for Biden and those voters uh, are voting for Democrats and those voters showed up again in 2020 voting I think it's three uh, uh, 60 uh, two two thirds for Biden and that 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 is how Biden won that Biden won because that 2018 turnout was in fact predictive of a surge in interest among you know Democrats or anti-trump or whatever it is that carried over to 2020 and made made the real difference uh, the Democratic Party did in response to Trump expand out its reach and only in the Hispanic community according to this poll, did Trump do do the same or this study, whatever you want to call it. Although Trump also narrowed the gender gap, interestingly. It shows that more Trump made some gains among women between 2016 and 2020, um, but Biden gained those suburban voters. Um, that they're, parsing a lot of the Pew uh, verified voter stuff is interesting because you see even among the his, among Hispanic voters where Trump did better, and, and I think much much to the shock of a lot of Democrats, did better than, than uh, he had previously. There's a big difference between college-educated and non-college-educated Hispanic voters. And, and Biden's not doing, you know, he did pretty well with non-college-educated white voters, but non-white, non-college-educated voters are a group that Biden's really not speaking to. That's also the group that recently elected, a lot of whom elected Adams in New York, right? I mean, there, there is a group of what Democrats... Uh, have long considered a core constituency for them who aren't voting democratically loyally on every ticket. And I think that's the group, that's the group they're going to need to watch certainly for the midterms and, and going forward for 2024. Which speaks to this question, which is that um, uh, Democrats are now viewing everything through the prism of race. Classically Democrats have viewed things through the prism of class or leftists have viewed things through the prism of class. And they are now viewing things through the prism of race and identity and uh, all of these results suggest that class is the tell. That people want to say that uneducated whites voted for Trump for racial reasons. But if, but if less educated whites, less educated Hispanics, and less educated blacks are voting for Trump in higher numbers or, you know, or like are, are, are more open or more uh, interested in this message and these messages, then class Trump's race and then that identitarianism um, is a is a bad bargain uh, for Democrats. They may it may be inescapable. It's now become part of their cultural DNA, but they may not be able. Uh, but I mean, it, it may you know if these if these uh, positions harden, if Democrats continue to fight a culture war that bears no relation or has no no plays no role in the lives of these people, and this is their focus. And maybe it's even offensive to them, particularly on gender and trans issues and stuff like that. Then uh, they are going to their their understanding of the electorate is 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 getting increasingly poisoned, well, even it, though yeah. they won these two elections. I mean, it's toxic. I would say you said it's bad for the Democrats. I think it really does have the potential for toxicity for them, and you could you can see glimmers of that. And you know, Biden bungling over the word Latinx, but insisting on using it, and you know, um, and on on this idea that what they're telling their own. Const- 
historical constituents is that if you don't embrace all of the identitarian politics and, and racial politics that we do, you're suffering from false consciousness, right? I mean, if you, if how dare a Hispanic person vote for Trump? He wanted to build a wall. Like that's literally the, the, the extent of their argument. You're, impo- you're, you're suggesting that these people can't think for themselves and decide for themselves. That's condescending. That's suggesting false consciousness. And that does encourage a backlash among those voters. Well, it's, you know, it's um, telling people what they should care about, um, which is which is a fatal mistake, I think, for a political party. It's a fatal mistake for uh, everything but this podcast. There We'd love go. to tell you what, what, you, what you should think about, it, and we will do, do so again tomorrow. Uh, but we're done for today. So for Christina Abe and Noah, I'm John Bodhoritz. Keep the candle burning.